Welcome to CSAP's Science and Policy Podcast. I'm Rob Doubleday. This season, we're bringing together academics, policy professionals and other experts to discuss what can be done to adapt to the impacts of climate change, how this can be done locally, globally, and in ways that are fair in terms of action and financing. I'm joined by my friend and colleague, Emily So, Professor of Architectural Engineering, who's leading these series of questions over four episodes about climate change, resilience, adaptation, and really what progress has been made at and since the COP26 meeting in Glasgow at the end of last year. Thanks, Rob. Pleasure to be here presenting the series, which is brought to you in partnership with the research project Expertise Under Pressure, part of the Centre for the Humanities and Social Change at the University of Cambridge. In this episode, we're discussing how people and businesses can learn to adapt and live with climate change, what behaviours need to be adopted and what conversations should be had and what action should be taken at a global, national and local level. We're delighted to be joined by Professor Dame Julia King, Baroness Brown of Cambridge, who's Deputy Chair of the UK Committee on Climate Change, chairing as Adaptation Committee and Chair of the Carbon Trust. And Emily Farnworth, Co-Director of the Centre for Climate Engagement at Hughes Hall here in Cambridge. Thank you both so much for taking time out of your busy schedule to join us today. I think I'll start with a question that I've asked in the previous two episodes and really get you to tell us more about COP26 and what your reflections are on COP26. How has it been different uh, from other COPs? What are the main game changes? And perhaps I'll start with you, Emily. Thank you so much, Emily. And it's really a delight to be here. So thank you for inviting me into the episode. Yeah, in terms of reflections from COP26 in Glasgow, I think it's fair to say that Yet again, we've seen a huge swell of commitments and examples of action from the business community, and in particular, a real growth in uh, interest and visibility of the finance sector in particular. And I think what that does is it signals to governments that there's a real desire from the private sector with the backing of the investors to to go faster um, to implement both the changes we need in in technology and infrastructure to reduce emissions, but also that indicator that's, uh, and for the first time, I think a a much stronger voice on the need for building resilience. And similarly, really good examples of, of organizations and businesses who've been working on addressing some of the challenges around um, flooding, uh, building uh, natural barriers, a whole range of new solutions that we're seeing on the resilient side of things, as well as the mitigation elements. So I think that was one of the, the real kind of takeaways from Glasgow. Obviously, we also saw the confirmation of the rule book, which is a big you know, key aspect for the negotiation process as part of the, the, the Paris Agreement. And also a commitment for rather than every five years, governments coming back to talk about how they've been um, implementing and strengthening their nationally determined contributions, their NDCs, looking at kind of having that happen on an annual basis. So I think a really important thing for us to be looking at into the future is how governments are really um, able to respond and and how the broader society can track what is actually happening on the ground with governments and how quickly governments can also raise their ambition. And I think that duality between seeing the the business ambition and and sort of governments being able to respond and vice versa is a really important dynamic in, in this global framework. 
Thanks, Emily. And, and turning to you, Julia, for your reflections. Well, I think it was good that adaptation and resilience had more airtime and a higher profile. It underlined yet again how much adaptation is the poor relation uh, in terms of funding. And, you know, we are still trying to to raise the, some of the money that uh, some of the, the global south and the less developed world needs to make itself more resilient. And that's proving uh, very painful. But we're also trying to persuade developed countries to make the right kind of investments in the future. Also, you know, we need to see countries, I think we really need to see the NDC process start to link into adaptation. We want to see countries making their adaptation commitments in the same way that they're being required to uh, to keep reproducing and, and improving their NDCs. You know, we haven't yet seen that. And of course, the, the loss and damage agenda really emphasised the, uh, the gulf there is between, I think, the developed countries and the developing world, where developed countries are absolutely focused on net zero and increasingly focused, you know, on how do they turn net zero into a business and the fact that it may even help them grow, grow their economies to be bringing forward these new low carbon technologies. And the developing world, particularly in the global south, is very, very focused on adaptation because they're already experiencing some really severe impacts of climate change and actually what they most want from the developed world is more help to make themselves more resilient and i felt that gulf was just uh, so apparent at the cop uh, and we've still got a lot of work to do to to bridge it really Hmm. Perhaps picking up your point, Julia, about this focus on adaptation and the need for finance. Is finance the one priority and the one thing that is driving this or is it the solution side of things? Do they know what they need to do? I think that's the, the key question here. Well, it, well, it's a mixture. I mean, in some areas, we know what to do about adaptation. You know, we've got terrible famine in, uh, in Kenya and Ethiopia at the moment and partly caused by the fact that they're growing crops which are not suited to their very dry climatic conditions. You know, so they're growing maize instead of their traditional crops of sorghum. And maize is a much, much more water-hungry and less drought-resistant crop. And part of this is because they're growing these crops because that's what we've driven them to grow. So, you know, we know there are solutions like supporting farmers with on-farm water storage so when it does rain they can be keeping the water for the times when it doesn't rain. We know that growing the right kinds of crops can help them with something that's a bit more drought resistant. Of course it can't be, things aren't totally drought resistant but you know some of this famine is, is caused by the changes quite often which, which we have had an influence in because we wanted to import some of these um, different foods that they're, they're now growing. Um, so, yes, we have some of the solutions, um, but yes, also we need the investment in order to implement them. Uh, and of course, that's true in, in, in the UK and, and in developed countries as well as in developing countries. I mean, what you were saying about the fact that the actual change in the business models, if you like, is driven by obviously the demand, the global demand for certain products that were not, it's not native, is something that we, we are seeing more and more 
in terms of you know, globally the, the demand for different food types, the different metals, precious metals. And I wonder from, from your point of view, just to follow on on that, is is it a behavioural change, a, a global review of what we're, we're actually demanding from these very climate prone areas that we have to shift? Or is it more to do with actually targeting, first of all, the immediate problems and then trying to influence the, you know, the, the long term demands? Well, some, some of it, I think, is, is about companies and organisations really looking at their supply chains and recognising that they have to have resilient supply chains and getting them to recognise that, that actually resilient supply chains for food crops, for example, means you have to care about the state of nature in the countries where those crops are coming from. You have to care about the state of their environment because if you want them to be resilient and to continue to grow those crops and to continue to be able to supply you with things whilst hopefully also feeding themselves, the state of nature in those countries has got to be healthy so that it can withstand some climatic changes and climatic impacts that climate change will bring. So, you know, we are all very interconnected in this and we should i think in a way companies should be helping the the countries that they are importing goods from because that's actually the best way of securing those supply chains rather than just simply saying oh i need five different places to get this from so if place a has a flood or a problem i just buy it from place b why not actually invest in in helping place a uh, to make themselves resilient and make your supply chain more resilient that way. That's really interesting. And Emily, you mentioned about the businesses being more visible and involved in COP26. And I wonder what they think about this duty of care, really, that Julia's just mentioned. Is that part of their remit? Do you see them having that in their thinking about how they progress um, into the next decade? Yeah, I do think it's really important. And I think there's been a lot of focus on, from a company perspective, on sort of looking at their direct emissions, their sort of scope one and two emissions from a mitigation perspective. And, and increasingly now they're looking at their supply chain and looking at the emissions reduction that they need to make there too. And I think as a result of that, and, and also probably as a result of the global pandemic and sort of various other challenges that we're, we're facing in the world as a result of you know, conflict in, in many parts of the world, I think a real recognition of the sensitivity of supply chains and value chains in being able to deliver. And I think that what that's doing for businesses is recognizing that there are multiple reasons why they really need to understand you know, where they're relying on product whether it be you know, food commodities, whether it be um, natural resources, whether it be electronics. I mean, there's a whole range of different organizations and businesses that have been really struggling in the context of, of um, being able to, to access um, what they need. And I think the other thing that I'd say from, from the business community perspective is, although COP26 certainly highlighted the sort of race to zero, the, the, the race to resilience is also highlighting for some industry sectors like tourism, for example, where there's a real need to understand the sensitivity around coastal locations and how they need to be able to kind of protect coastal zones, just to kind of give you one very specific example. I think the drive for companies to need to look more 
clearly at the financial implications associated with climate risk is highlighting not just the sort of um, carbon intensity of their operations and their value chain, but also the sensitivity to climate impacts, uh, whether that be extreme weather, whether that be flooding, sea level rise, etc. And so I think there is a growing awareness now of some of the challenges facing business, but I, I don't yet think there's a sort of systemic view around it yet. I think it's still very much sort of asset by asset, kind of what is the risk, rather than necessarily thinking in the longer term about their business models and their value chains more holistically. So I think that's maybe somewhere that we'll start to see a better understanding of how businesses need to work together, need to work with local governments and local communities to to have a, a more resilient approach across the community rather than just their own specific item that they're trying to to kind of secure as part of their as part of their business you mentioned about the recent crisis the the war in ukraine and covid obviously have we learnt any lessons from those crises that are helping the climate agenda in any way are the governments paying more attention to certain aspects of regulations or anything that uh, within the kind of national level julia that you can comment on that is helping the, the agenda, the climate agenda, and our race to resilience? Uh, well, I think I, I was with the water industry um, talking to them, and the uh, very strong message I got from them was that uh, they had really been, the war in Ukraine has really brought to attention the fact that they haven't been paying attention to their supply chains, that they're now finding certain chemicals they need in the industry are really hard to come by. And I think what COVID and and the Ukraine situation have done is really highlight supply chain risks in a way that, although we've been banging on about it on the Climate Change Committee for the last 10 years or so to say we need to be thinking more about about our supply chain risks from the climate, I think it has been the pandemic and now the war in Ukraine that have really brought supply chain risks onto the desks of quite a lot of senior executives across the UK. And that's good for us. I mean, it's, the situation isn't good, but it's good for us from a climate perspective, because of course, actually you want them to think about all of the supply chain risks together. You don't want them to have different packets for different ones. But So it has got both the government and industry thinking about supply chain risks. And I suppose I would, I would say in the, our advice to the government on the second climate change risk assessment about six years ago now, um, we flagged up supply chain risks, particularly for food, uh, as being a priority risk area. And the government said that was the one thing they disagreed with us about. They said, no, markets will sort that. We don't need to think about it. We flagged it again this year, well, last year, actually, when we gave our advice on the third climate change risk assessment for the UK. And this year, the government has, this year in January, the government has accepted that that's one of the key risks for the UK. Uh, and I think, I hope it's our lucid arguments that's won that battle. But I think COVID has helped us as well, because I think those empty supermarket shelves that we saw at the, uh, you know, during the lockdowns and things has really, I think, helped underline to government that we do need to pay much more attention to this. And are mandates and things that, you know, a change in regulations part of that package that we need? Is it something that the businesses that you are in touch with, Emily, would be 
welcoming that there's some guidance on how to manage their their own businesses um, in line with the government thinking or was it really about talking to each other and actually benefiting from each other's um, normal operations and, and way of working that the government really need to also listen to the private sector to, to gain insights from them. I think it's obviously all of the above. You know, businesses have been taking some voluntary action, but I think there's a recognition that regulatory drivers are the best way of ensuring the entire marketplace uh, moves in, in a certain direction. And Often we've seen some of the the regulatory signals from a, again, primarily, I have to say, from a mitigation perspective, but the the policy signals that will allow businesses to respond. So, for example, when the UK government brought in uh, an indication of um, the phase out of combustion engines, it gives industry a chance to respond to that. And, you know, we've seen this now, this sort of real increase in, in electric vehicles and still a long ways to go in terms of the right infrastructure in place. But... Those policy signals really help the industry shift. So, of course, we absolutely need more of that in order to accelerate rapidly the change that we need. Um, We're going to need something similar in the context of also building resilience. I mean, I think it really is about ensuring that there's you know, the, the true cost of some of the the, the demand for, for goods and services is, is built into the way that businesses operate. And just one final comment as well. I think, you know, there's a big education and, you know, change in expectations, I think, from consumers too. I mean, we all need to perhaps learn that there are limitations to um, what we can expect to see on supermarket shelves or what we can expect to to be able to, you know, how we, sh- we should be expecting to live as we start to adapt ourselves to the changing climate, but also the, 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 the you know, the changes that's going to have on, on global value chains and supply chains. Can I come in there? I mean, I think the TCFD, the, the Task Force on Climate-Related Financial Disclosure Requirements on large companies to identify their climate risks is helpful here. But I think what we see that doing is that it, it's got it onto the risk register, but that's a bit of a tick. We've declared it. Uh, it hasn't yet got for many companies uh, then to the thinking about what do we do about it? What does it mean? Uh, and of course, it does require you to know quite a lot about your suppliers. It requires a lot more communication and, and sharing of information. And it would be good, just as we're getting companies to think about scope three emissions, uh, if we got them to think about scope three resilience. <laughs> and, it, and it's, of course, companies need to think beyond their tier one suppliers and where the real problems may well occur is particularly in smaller companies, tier two, tier three, further away from the company purchasing things. But I think for some of our regulated industries, so, so for some of our infrastructure industries, I think the regulators could be playing a much stronger role here. And again, from the water industry earlier in the week, I had a, a really interesting but frustrating example where a water company had its facilities to resilient to a one in 200 year flood, but then the electricity got cut off because their electricity supplier, their local part of their electricity network uh, was only actually um, resilient to a one in 20 year flood. So when there was a major uh, storm, their electricity went off. So, you know, actually the for our regulated industries, for our really key industries, I think the regulators 
could be doing something to ensure there are uh, consistent resilient standards between companies and their suppliers. And that could be uh, a very important part of keeping the British population safe, really. I mean, this is an area of great concern to me in my area of research when we look at disaster resilience and look at natural disasters that we, the ones that are working in, in, in the field don't speak the same language. Um, we don't have the standardised uh, metrics or actually a way of communicating that allows for that collaboration that you talk about, allows for that looking beyond the, the first tier, looking you know, to the, the actual the origins of your, or your suppliers and, and, and really get to the bottlenecks and the potential issues. And I think that's something that perhaps COVID and Ukraine have, have, have brought to light is that it doesn't stop you know, at the doorstep. It has to go beyond that, right? It can't be and standardization and actually talking the same language and making sure everybody has that same agenda is, is, is a good start. Perhaps we can move a little bit towards out of kind of the national regulatory agenda and, and initiatives to something, Julie, you've talked about before, the local context. And how do we translate some of these climate initiatives in, into the local context? And what are we lacking um, to help the local communities in the UK and abroad? Well, I think quite often we have some very good climate projections but actually interpreting those because adaptation, because building resilience has to be local because it depends on what the local impact of climate, so your local weather conditions that the climate change is going to deliver for you. Um, it, of course, depends on your local terrain, your soil types, whether you're urban or, or rural environment. It depends also on how naturally resilient your population are, how how rich they are, how poor they are, the demographics about age, you know, are they particularly elderly? So how resilient, how, how much kind of inherent resilience do they have? All of those things are important. And I think one of the things that we need a lot more of is actually the interpretation of climate data down to what does that mean for the kind of situations, the kind of scenarios locally that we need to be ready for, that are our local resilience teams or resilience fora, as we have in the UK, what do they need to be prepared for? Uh, and I think that's quite an important and still quite often missing piece of the puzzle. And actually, it's often missing for business as well, because they say, OK, you tell us about you know two and four degree rises, but you know I've got a factory in this location. What kind of conditions might that factory be seeing? And therefore, how do I need to be prepared in order to make sure it can continue functioning or or whatever it is. So that, that I think, is, is one of the gaps. The other big gap, of course, for national and local action is actually the ability to make a business case for adaptation action. You, you may be able to raise a green bond, but then at the end of it, you've got to pay, pay that back. There's got to be a revenue stream associated with it. And the benefits of adaptation actions are often so dispersed, it's quite hard to identify where this revenue stream is going to come from. Uh, and actually, people who are probably going to have to pay in some of these local situations, people do not yet understand that this is something they are going to have to pay for. So that's not really on their agenda. I mean, somebody was talking to me earlier about something that was suggested that uh, Glasgow City Council should do in terms of improving resilience, which would have then required them to put a levy on their population in Glasgow to, to pay for the uh, changes that were being made. And they just said, no, we can't do that. People won't 
people don't recognise they need to pay for this yet. And we can't be seen to be, it would be politically unacceptable for us to tell people they're going to have to make these additional payments. The other, I mean, the other problem associated with that is that we we discount, we still discount the future. And adapt, a lot of adaptation is is still certainly perceived to be a fairly, an investment for the long term. And there's this assumption that we're all going to go on getting richer, so it will get cheaper to do it the longer we mm. leave it. Um, and I think that's a question, that's a that's an assumption that we really have to start to question these days. The Dasgupta review has shown us how we're using up nature at a faster rate than nature can regenerate itself. We know that, you know, if we're not careful, there are some key minerals and things we're we're going to be running short of if we just dig them out of the ground willy-nilly and don't use them really carefully. You know, we are kind of using up our planet in terms of nature, in terms of other resources, um, faster than is sustainable. So this assumption of continued year-on-year GDP growth everywhere on the planet, which enables us to discount the future, I think it's one we really need to rethink. That's really interesting and, and, and lots of food for thought in terms of what's in it for the, uh, the early adopters. And I think I'd like to turn to Emily, you know, in your experience in your world with businesses, NGOs that you talk to, what are the opportunities for them? What areas of innovation should they be looking into in order to become these early adopters, but actually get some kind of financial reward for that? Yeah, I mean, again, it's probably a lot clearer for, for a lot of organisations and businesses to to see that on the mitigation side of things. You know, we have seen in some cases, you know, incentives that can help support and, and also the kind of quick paybacks for basic things like, you know, becoming more energy efficient and more resource efficient. I think as we start to see some of these other areas that need to be addressed, for example, you know, in the UK with this requirement now to ensure a 10% net um, biodiversity gain, there's opportunities with that sort of driver, if you like, to ensure that companies are are thinking more holistically about what that might mean for flood defence or flood control uh, and and sort of perhaps being, again, sort of quite, quite sort of thoughtful about what it can do to also improve the, you know, people enjoy being in nature and people enjoy kind of those open spaces and thinking about the health benefits of that in the context of uh, people spending more time outdoors or being able to walk or cycle. Um, obviously, all of those things are, are being taken into consideration. But I think the truth of it is, uh, you know, particularly in the context of local planning, there are a lot of different demands on, on space and a lot of different issues to, to to weigh up and I think it's it's really about being able to prioritize some of these issues that are relevant for building climate resilience building you know building back our and, and regenerating um, the biodiversity in a way that at the moment there's not always a strong uh, economic driver for and it is something that we have to recognize there's value beyond the sort of you know the sort of the hard cash if you like and I think we're getting better at understanding some of the economics we're getting better at understanding some of the you know if, if you can kind of ensure that you can improve the you know the health of local communities then obviously there are savings in the healthcare system I mean I know it's not quite that simplistic but we do need to start thinking about how we we kind of look at the bigger picture of what this means for for the for the economy and the the health of, of people and, and their well-being in addition to thinking about some of the climate and, and nature benefits as well but you know we're still you know we're still very much on an early learning curve on all of this. So perhaps we can um, move on to the public now what part do they play I mean is it 
that they're waiting for the government or the local authorities to incentivize them in some way. I mean, I personally am, am, am very encouraged by the fact that we've moved from using lots of uh, single-use plastics to now really looking at alternatives. And that's driven, I personally think, by, by the young people and the communities. And I wonder if either of you can comment on initiatives and things that you, you can see are, are from the public, it's driven by the public, and, and what role they play in, in the climate agenda and actually our race to resilience. Julia, perhaps start with you? I don't see a huge amount that's driven by the public, but I think that's partly because the public are not very well informed about this. The public, it hits the public when an area floods or you know when the surface water flooding and your basement floods in London or when we have an, a really, really extraordinarily hot summer, as we've had actually in a number of years recently. But, but when that goes away, it's not something the public, I think, think about very much, actually. And one of the things that DEFRA is doing at the moment, actually, is sort of equivalent to the, the, the thing that, they, that Parliament actually ran for the public on climate change mitigation to try and gauge public understanding and opinion about adaptation and resilience and what's going to be needed. Because I think we desperately need to increase public understanding. You know, you hear stories of people in, in areas or living by rivers that flood regularly, that actually they still perceive that rather than increasing the value of their home, property level flood resilience measures like raised sockets and tiled ground floors and waterproof plaster and you know, raised door sills and things, they still perceive those things will reduce the value of their home because people will think, oh, it's an area that floods. But you know, the reality is this is an area that floods. If you see a home that hasn't got those features, then you know when the flooding happens, it's going to be a long time before you can get back in. So there's still not the right kind of understanding it should actually add to the value of your home. It shouldn't be seen as a negative. If you want to live in that beautiful area just by the river where, you know, where it, it might flood, it may well be that the Environment Agency can't come along and protect you with temporary barriers. And you don't want a huge concrete screen built in front of your house. <laughs> stops you seeing the river or whatever. So we do need to change the thinking about adaptation uh, in the UK because it isn't really on, on people's agenda. It's very different if you go to some of the um, low-lying countries that flood regularly, where, of course, you know, everybody is signed up for the alerts and everybody is drilled and knows exactly what to do. And we've seen in some of the, uh, the poorer parts of the globe uh, where they flood regularly, where they've, they've now put in place you know, really good warning systems, we've seen dramatic reductions in the number of people uh, who die in major flooding events. We, we haven't yet got that culture, certainly. And as we saw in, in Germany last spring, when there were those terrible floods, uh, large numbers of, uh, of people died. We haven't got that culture and understanding yet in, in places like uh, the UK and other parts of Europe. Not, not obviously the Netherlands, but other parts of Europe where we're not so familiar with these events. And Emily, is it in the messaging that we're not getting right? Is it because we, we're fearful that it will it'll panic the public if we are too strong with our with our messaging that you know, things are going to happen? Or is it really a behavioural shift, as, as Julia is mentioning, that we need to start 
subconsciously building these uh, these messages into into the public and getting them to take responsibility for what's going to happen. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, things like hosting a, a COP in, in the UK has sort of put it on the radar for a lot more of the public. And I know many of the broadcasting houses, you know, built into their programming, uh, you know, the sort of the context of climate change into soap operas and quizzes and all sorts of other things, which I think does help to raise awareness. But I think the tricky thing is, you know, there's, there's many surveys out there that talk about people's, uh, you know, people caring about climate change, people understanding it, but not necessarily changing any behaviour as a result. And I think probably even less understanding, apart from, as, as Julie mentioned, you know, when you're immediately hit by, you know, by ex- an extreme weather event or, or, or flooding in your particular neighbourhood, then that kind of brings it to home. But in those cases, perhaps not necessarily always a clear understanding between the link um, around what's happening with that and the context of climate change. One really positive anecdote I heard was that the the Grantham Institute at Imperial College has got a document which is the sort of the nine things you can do about climate change and they've reported that that's hands down the most downloaded document on on their site so I think there is a real desire from people to kind of try and understand what they can do but of course you know a lot of what you can do in your in your day-to-day life of course you can take small steps but it is some of these more fundamental systemic changes that are needed and so really using your kind of you know your your kind of voting voice if you like to kind of really push and put things on the the radar for members of parliament is probably something you know some of those kind of actions that we need even even more of and in terms of some of the i think people are starting to understand that you know eating less red meat and not flying and and sort of you know there are some basic things that people have a reasonable understanding of in terms of being able to to reduce emissions but there's perhaps not quite that level of understanding around some of the things that they can do to, to build resilience. And with an aging population, you know, the issue of, of um, and with rising energy bills, the issues of either, you know, people overheating or being, you know, too cold in the wintertime, you know, I think these kinds of issues are going to hit home. And perhaps in the same way that the young voice has, you know, raised the alarm, if you like, in terms of their future. I think there's, there's some other issues as well. I think we're going to be dealing with in terms of the, the changing demographic in the UK and I think what we need to be able to do is is also give people the kind of the the positive responses that they can take uh, in order to take action to build resilience in their community as well. And and I think there are some, you know, that the government could do some things to really bring home to people that that we're going to need to change. One of the things that I think would really bring it home to people was if we said we have to change the school year because it is really completely unacceptable for us to have school children sitting often in 1960s and 70s buildings with lots of glass windows, taking their exams at about the hottest time of the year when we know that performance deteriorates in really hot environments. You know, you see those pictures of kids sitting in often the school hall or the gym, an entire wall of glass, uh, and as our summers are getting hotter, particularly in the southeast, you know, w- why these things that are so crucial to their future, why are we making them take them in, in the environments where we know they will perform below par? So if the government would say, right, we cannot have exams in June and July for kids, they can't perform at their best, maybe the public would start to recognise that actually we need to, we really do need to take these things into account. 
this ingrained behaviors of, of individuals and our, I guess, how tightly we hold to our habits and, and ways that's always been done this way and therefore we can't change anything. It's something that's really been turned on its head by COVID. And I think, you know, as you were saying, Julia, it, it just takes one radical action to start drawing people's attention to, well, why, why have you made that decision? You know, what, what's wrong with taking exams? And some The students all know what's wrong with that, but, you know, they, they can't voice that as a, as a concern. So we're running out of time, but I would really like perhaps for, for both of you to comment on what, as an academic, what can the academic community do to help accelerate our race to resilience, to, to help with these adaptation actions? Julia, perhaps I can start with you. Well, well, I think we've got to move from kind of analysing and understanding resilience and risk to the solutions part of it, that what actions can you take, what can you do about it? And actually, really crucially, what's the right data, what are the right measurements to be taking to make sure that those actions are improving the situation? And I think there's a huge and important role for some really clever applied research there because actually quite a lot of adaptation at the moment is doing things that we think are probably appropriate but actually we don't know how to measure whether they're really making a difference yet and I think that's a hugely important area. I think a, another really important area is that of, of the modeling of interdependencies and, and I think you know we've got projects like the Credo project in Cambridge, which is looking at modeling towns with electricity systems and water systems and communication systems and sort of saying, you know, if that substation fails, the water supply to the houses over here goes down and the um, communication network here and this nursing home will be then at risk. That kind of modeling, which doesn't actually require the industries to share data yet, but it's the kind of modeling that I hope will convince people that we need to change the regulatory environment, that industries do need to share more data, that you know, we need that, that communal understanding of interdependencies. That is hugely helpful, I think, and enormously, enormously powerful. So measurement and metrics, modeling of interdependencies, um, turning climate data into scenarios for doing stress tests, all of that kind of work. I slightly worry that it feels like rather applied work, but it's it's work with such enormous potential impact that I think it's uh, it's really exciting and really important. Yeah, I would really echo that point around data. And I think a combination of things, you know, the increasing understanding and use of artificial intelligence, use of machine learning to not only access more data, but to analyze data in ways that we just haven't been able to do previously. And to use some of that, you know, to use some of that sort of uh, academic resource to really apply it to some of the challenges that we have right now to in increase transparency. And the benefit of universities in this space is that, you know, we can really sort of focus on making sure that a lot of this data is uh, in the public domain and that, it, you know, it's, it's, there's, a, there's access to all to some of this data and information so that it doesn't just sort of get sucked up from a, you know, from a corporate standpoint and, and not shared in the right way. So I, I really do think all, all aspects of this data piece are really important. And I think something uh, linked to that, for example, the work that Cambridge is doing on digital twins, for example, and, and sort of use, being able to utilize 
these kinds of models to, you know, scenario test and this this sort of interconnectedness that we have around um, the different infrastructure. I mean, the, the point that Julia made about, you know, understanding we have enough power demand for the, you know, for the water companies to to do what they need to do, you know, at a time of need. There's, there's all sorts of interconnected pieces to this this jigsaw, which I think we have the capability now to be able to understand and, and better model. The other thing I would say, I mean, the the Cambridge Zero Policy Forum, I think, has been really helpful in that multidisciplinary uh, approach to looking at issues and being able to bring together the engineers with the social scientists, with the, you know, with the geographers, with the law academics, I think, to really think through um, some of the challenges that we've got to face in a much more creative way, I think, is, is a really important role that the universities can play. And then finally, I mean, it, it kind of is stating the obvious, perhaps, but I think there's still a need to mainstream this topic and probably, you know, other, you know, related environmental and, and social topics into things like the sort of, you know, education for medics and education for lawyers, you know, new lawyers coming through and all of the, the different disciplines, if you like, throughout the university to sort of embed what this means for their learning, for their future careers so you're bringing the kind of the new, you know, sort of cohort of professionals into a space where they're already understanding kind of their role, not just their sort of personal individual behavior change that, that perhaps they would be in a good place to, to kind of carry out, but also how they can bring their thinking into their sort of future workplaces. And I know there's, there's quite a lot of conversations going on across the university in terms of how that might work, for example, within an MBA program. But I think more of that thinking is really uh, necessary if we're going to build you know, the next generation of, of professionals and, and leaders with a really good understanding of, of, of the challenges that we're going to be facing. Great. Thank you so much. I guess I, I'll add that to that for my own teaching of the architects. Decarbonisation is a it's a huge topic at the moment and one that we try to inject at every level from the design to the core kind of theoretical teaching. And I think there's lots to be done. But thank you very much, both of you, for taking the time to talk to us and give us your views. Thank you to Professor Dame Julia King and Emily Farnworth for being part of the conversation. And it's been a fascinating talk with you both. Thank you. Thank you. This series on science policy and climate resilience is brought to you in partnership with the research project Expertise Under Pressure, part of the Centre for the Humanities and Social Change at the University of Cambridge. To hear more conversations like this, make sure you follow and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You can also follow us on Twitter and LinkedIn. As always, if you have any feedback or ideas you'd like us to cover in future episodes, please email inquiries at csap.cam.ac.uk. Thanks to our producer, Jessica Foster, and researcher, Nick Kostick. And thank you to you for listening. Mm-hmm.